The following audio is from Two Pillars Church, a gospel-centered, missionally-focused church located in Lincoln, Nebraska. More information about Two Pillars Church can be found at www.twopillarschurch.com. 20th century poet T.S. Eliot wrote in a 1929 essay these words. He says, it is a test that genuine poetry can communicate before it is understood. Genuine poetry can communicate before it is understood. And if there was a psalm of ascent that passed Eliot's test, I think Psalm 129 would be the one. Um, Psalm 129 is one of those psalms that manages to capture something that prose wouldn't quite be sufficient to capture. It uses and evokes graphic imagery that elicits a response of you and me as the readers. And it, it begins to communicate immediately, even before you have a good understanding or, or, or grasp of the, the main idea of the text. And, and so, of course, we're going to work to understand it as well. And as we do, here is the Here's the main idea that I want us to, to pull out of this text. This is, I think, what, what Psalm 129, as it communicates to us, and as we work towards understanding, this is what I think it wants us to know, and that is this. Have confidence in the Lord, Christian, our righteous deliverer and judge. It's an imperative. This is a, a, a psalm of confidence. Have confidence in the Lord, our righteous deliverer and judge. And so we're going to work our way through this. And as, as we do, pay attention again to this graphic imagery. We're going to look at the first half of the psalm, which, uh, where we find that the psalmist remembering the Lord's deliverance in the past. It's another one of those psalms where the, the psalmist is standing in the present, looking back to the past and remembering looking to the future and anticipating. And so the psalmist remembers the Lord's deliverance in verses 1 through 4, and then in verses 5 through 8, the psalmist prays for the Lord's justice. And so let's focus in on, on those first four verses. The, the psalmist begins by remembering past affliction. And as he does so, he repeats himself, did you notice that? He repeats himself in verses 1 through 2. And in doing so, he captures both the individual and the corporate focus of this psalm. This psalm has application for you as an individual follower of Jesus, you as a Christian, but it also has implications for us as the body of Christ, for us as his called out people in the church. He says this, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, and then the refrain, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. On the one hand, the psalmist himself has experienced affliction at the hand of others. On the other hand, as he invites the people of Israel to repeat the same phrase, we see that Israel, God's people, they too have suffered affliction. They've suffered affliction corporately, collectively, as the people of God. And in fact, this suffering and, and affliction has been the story of God's people from their youth. You see, Israel has a long history of, of enduring 
suffering at the hands of others. If, if you know your Bible, if you've spent some time reading the Old Testament, you know this well. Because much of that difficult history, that painful history, that history of affliction is recorded there for us. For example, we could go back and see the affliction of God's people as Jerusalem is destroyed and, and many are killed and as God's people are carried away into captivity by the Babylonians. Or we could turn to Exodus and see the people of God enslaved in Egypt, even as Pharaoh gives the command that all newborn Hebrew sons be killed and drowned in the Nile River. We might even go back as far as Abel in Genesis 4, whose brother Cain rose up and killed. You see, from the earliest days, God's people have been an afflicted people. From from the earliest days, God's people have suffered at the hands of others. And it it isn't just any affliction either. It's not just that they've had it kind of rough. God's people, we're told, have been afflicted greatly. And not, not just once or twice, but often repeatedly, not just mildly afflicted, but they've been afflicted severely. They've been afflicted relentlessly. This is the story of God's people. This is the story of God's people, a tradition in which we now stand, right, as God's people in the church. And we get a graphic picture of this affliction in verse 3. Read this, and this is where the graphic imagery begins. It, it begins to communicate, even if you're not quite sure what the psalmist is is getting at. He says, the plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. This is one of those images in the Psalms that I find to be like the most, it just makes my skin crawl. I wonder if as you read that over and over, take, take a moment to read it again. I, I wonder if it doesn't just it evoke some kind of response in you. This is is one of my least favorite images that I've read in the book of of Psalms because it's so so graphic and yet it's it's there very much on purpose. It's there to to tell us something. We're invited to imagine here a a farmer plowing a field with a sharp plow being pulled by oxen. You see that the point of the plow would dig into the hard ground, which had been packed solid and baked solid by the hot sun. And this plow would cut a trench in the earth where seeds would eventually be sown. And then, of course, you can imagine this happening on the backs of men, on the backs of women, on the backs of God's people plowing. It's a disturbing and gruesome and and, and graphic picture. Eugene Peterson adds a little more color for us. He says, picture Israel, the person of faith, lying stretched out prone. Think of that vulnerable position. If you're going to be plowed upon, you're probably lying flat, prone on the ground. The enemies hitch up their oxen and plows begin cutting long furrows in the backs of Israel. Long gashes cut into the skin and flesh, back and forth, systemically like a farmer working a field. Imagine the whole thing, the blood, the pain, the back and forth cruelty. This is a picture of the affliction 
suffered by God's people, by God's people from their very youth. Not only is it a picture of vulnerability and helplessness, it's, it's a picture of the wicked actually working to gain and to profit from the sufferings of God's people. This is why you plow ground and plant seed, isn't it? You're not doing it because you're bored. You're, you're doing it because you want to reap a harvest. The backs of God's people were plowed upon and seeds of oppression had been sown in order that the, the oppressors might reap a harvest at Israel's expense. This is the picture that we get in these first three verses. This is the, the great affliction suffered by God's people, and, and yet, despite the fact that the story of God's people is a story of suffering, of great affliction, it is not, it is not a story of destruction, nor is it a story of defeat. Neither, by the way, is Psalm 129 a psalm of lament. We've seen those. Psalm 120, for example, was a psalm of lament. This psalm is not a psalm of, of lament. This psalm is a psalm of confidence. Verses 1 through 3, we, we see the, the great affliction of God's people in their youth, the, the long furrows of oppression plowed into the backs of God's people. And then these three verses give way to verse 4, which is a pivot point of the entire psalm. You see, verse 4 reveals the hope of the, Lord's of the Lord's afflicted people. And everything changes. Everything pivots. Verse 2 hinted at it. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. You see, Israel's oppressors didn't get the last words. Their, their enemies weren't able to carry out their mission of subjugation and destruction to its ultimate and final conclusion. See, while, people, while God's people suffer greatly, their enemies have not prevailed. Why? How could this be? Think about Israel lying prone on the ground. How could that Israel prevent their own defeat and destruction? How could a weak and vulnerable and persecuted people manage to frustrate the plans of their stronger enemies? Verse 4 tells us, it had very little to do with Israel. It had a lot to do with their God. The psalmist says, the Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. They have not prevailed because the Lord is righteous. They have not prevailed because of the Lord's faithfulness. He's, he's faithfulness to his promises to his people. See, this is what it means to be God's people. It means to be the recipients of many promises, many incredible promises. And the Lord is faithful to these promises. He's faithful to preserve his people, even in the midst of great affliction. You see, while he allowed them to suffer for a time, he does not allow the plans of their persecutors to come to a full and final fruition. God's people were preserved, and their enemies will not and have not prevailed. Instead, we read that the Lord has cut the cords of the wicked. We're back to this plowing metaphor. I think the psalmist is probably referring to the, the straps here, which fasten the yoke to the neck of the oxen. 
You see, with the harness broken, the power provided by the oxen, the, the power that plowed the field that made the furrows is rendered helpless. It's, it's eliminated. You see, the entire process of affliction is undermined by the Lord who is righteous, who has cut this strap of the wicked. And, and so you could imagine that the, the plower is kind of standing there, helpless, as, as the oxen wander off. You see, this is what the Lord did for the afflicted people of God time and time and time again. You see, while the, the, the Old Testament, while it recounts the sufferings and the afflictions of God's people, so too does it record the deliverance and the faithfulness of a righteous God. You see, the Lord is righteous. He faithfully delivers his people. And, and that was true for Israel then. And we can trust that it remains true for us today as a church. The Apostle Paul had a, a, a testimony that, that is very similar to this psalm. In his second letter to the Corinthians, he said this, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. See, whatever our suffering, whatever your suffering, brothers and sisters, whatever your affliction, whatever your persecutors and oppressors may do, whatever furrows they may plow into the backs of God's people, we are not crushed. We are not driven to despair. We are not forsaken. By God, we are not destroyed because, listen to this, even if our enemies could destroy our bodies, even if they could kill our bodies, Jesus reminds us that we're not to fear those who kill the body. He says, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both the soul and the body in hell. This is what Jesus said to his disciples, and so then, what, what plot of the enemy, what plot of Satan himself could separate us from the love of God in Christ, who has brought us from death to life, who has brought us from condemnation to justification. He's cut the cords of the wicked, and not just the cords of wicked men, but he's cut the cords of Satan and sin and death itself, and he will deliver his afflicted people from the jaws of defeat and destruction, from the jaws of sin and death, two pillars, have confidence in the Lord, our righteous deliverer. And yet, this psalm doesn't just stop at deliverance for God's people. That The confidence of the psalmist here isn't just confidence in the Lord as a deliverer. He goes a step beyond deliverance and he asks, he makes a second ask. He makes an ask for justice. You see, this, this psalmist doesn't just say, dear God, make it stop. The prayer of Psalm 129 is, dear God, make it right. Dear God, make it right. This is the psalmist's prayer as he prays for the Lord's future justice. Now again, the, the first four verses have been looking back 
They've been looking backwards, recounting affliction and the Lord's deliverance from that affliction. It's, it's as if to say the Lord is faithful and righteous to deliver his people then, so you can trust him as your righteous deliverer now. But verses 5 through 8 are a prayer that, that looks the other way. It looks to the future, asking the Lord for justice, but justice that hasn't yet been realized. He prays, may all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Remember what we said a few weeks ago, that for God's people, Zion was a, a place steeped in rich symbolism. It represented a lot of things for God's people. For God's people, it was a, it was a place of God's presence. It was a place of God's protection. Zion was a place of of God's blessing. And so then, to hate Zion, as the psalmist says here, is to hate or to oppose God's people. But it doesn't just stop at hating or opposing God's people. To hate Zion is to hate or to oppose the very presence of God himself. It's to hate his reign and his rule, his covenant blessings. It's to hate and to oppose the establishment of his kingdom. And of course, we know that those who hate Zion weren't, all, weren't only around in Old Testament times. This is a New Testament times and a present day reality as well. You see, Jesus and the scriptures are clear. We visited this over the past few weeks as well. Jesus and the scriptures are clear that there would always there, there, there will always, until Jesus comes back, there will always be those who hate Jesus and who hate his gospel, who hate his word, and who oppose the establishment of his kingdom. You see, we live in a world that is hostile towards Jesus and the gospel. This is why Jesus said things like, hey, they hated me, so they're also going to hate you. He, he told his disciples, I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you because you don't belong to it anymore. Two pillars. Jesus chose you out of the world. You don't belong to the world anymore. And the world is getting a sense of this. And it's not happy about it. And therefore, because you belong to Jesus and the Father who is in heaven and not the prince of the power of the air, the world hates you. Paul, Paul wrote in his first letter to the Corinthians that the gospel is foolishness, it's folly to those who are perishing. This gathering to the world is nonsense. The good news of the gospel that we, we bank our entire lives and our eternity on, that we proclaim to all who have ears to hear. It's, it's foolishness. It's folly. It's, it's nonsense to the world around us. Look, this is important for us to remember. Remember that when someone rejects or persecutes you as a Christian, this isn't a, a simple rejection of you as a person. This isn't just a, a slight against you individually. It's, it's a rejection of Christ himself and his gospel. It's a rejection of Christ's kingdom, his, his reign, and his rule. It's a rejection of his love poured out in a substitutionary death on the cross. It's a rejection of his sovereign 
and rightful lordship over all of creation. And and it's interesting that in in Acts, we see Saul, who who would later become the Apostle Paul. In Acts, we see Saul standing in approval of the martyr of Stephen. This is the first martyrdom, this is the first martyr that we see in the New Testament, Stephen. We're told that the those who stoned him to death, who executed him by stoning, laid their, their clothes at Saul's feet, and he approved of Stephen's execution. And then the next verse, we're, we're told that a great persecution arose that day against the church. And at the head of this persecution was Saul. Again, to become the Apostle Paul. We're told that he ravaged the church and, listen to this, entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And then one day, when he was on his way to Damascus, Paul hears the voice of the risen Christ. And look at, look at what Jesus said to Paul. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? When Saul was dragging Christians, kicking and screaming out of their homes, throwing them into prison and, and tossing away the key, what Jesus tells us here, what Jesus makes clear is that Paul was actually afflicting and oppressing and persecuting him. He was persecuting and opposing the risen Lord himself. Similarly here, the the psalmist says, all those who hate the Lord, all those who hate God's people, all those who afflict God's people are are opposing the Lord himself. To, To To afflict the people of God is to oppose God himself. And so the psalmist says, all those who hate the Lord and his people, like in a lost military battle, may they all be put to shame. May they all be put to shame and turned away, turned backward in defeat. Then the author takes us once again back to the agricultural metaphors that he began with. He says, let them be like grass on the housetops, which wither before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaves his arms. I have a yard guy. My, my yard guy comes to my house and takes care of my yard. He doesn't mow it. I still have to do that, unfortunately, but he comes to my house five to seven times a year. He applies some fertilizer, he spot treats for weeds, and I try to be around when my yard guy shows up because I'm not a yard guy and I have lots of questions. And and so we now have a big patch of our yard that used to be a garden. Um, We're not in a gardening stage of life right now, and so we want to plant some grass um, so that we have more yard, right? And so uh, I kind of hang around until my yard guy gets there. Then I kind of put myself in his path and I ask him questions. And so I asked him this time, I said, hey, we're looking to plant some grass 
uh, what's the best time of year to do this? And, and my yard guy tells me this, that the fall, not the spring, is the best time to plant grass. And the reason is this, if you plant grass in the spring, that young, newly growing grass is going to have to deal with the heat and the dryness of the summer. You see, for the, for the psalmist, winter was the wet season, and, and winter gives way to summer just like it does here, even though it looks different from where the psalmist was. Climates are different, but the, the wet winter season is followed by the dryness of the summer. And just like around here, triple-digit heat, uh, when the summer came, it was hot and it was dry, and plants that were young and didn't have a, a deep and robust root system would die and wither as quickly as they popped up, just like the grass that we planted in our front yard. Um, much to our yard guy's chagrin. We thought, hey, we can make this happen in the, in the spring. Um, so the, the, the psalmist says, let those who hate Zion be like this young grass that pops up at the beginning of the summer. When, when the hot sun comes out, it burns and it dries up and ultimately it withers away. It disappears. The psalmist is saying, look, Lord, those who hate Zion, those who have afflicted us and opposed you and your kingdom, let them not flourish and grow and thrive, but instead let them be wiped out before the reaper comes to harvest and to gather. Remember, they're sowing seeds in order that they might reap a harvest at the expense of God's people. And so, in other words, let, let those who plowed the backs of God's people, sowing seeds of oppression and persecution for their own gain, reap not fruit of blessing for their injustices, but rather the fruit of just consequences for their wickedness. May those who work for our destruction be destroyed themselves. May it be returned, he says, on their own heads. Now, this is the exact opposite of what we see in Psalm 1. We looked at Psalm 1 in our introduction week. Remember, in Psalm 1, we're given this wonderful picture of the blessed man, the blessed person. We're told he is like a, a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. What the psalmist is praying for here is the exact opposite of this kind of blessing, isn't it? Not deep roots, not a, a tree planted by streams of water, heat, dryness, withering, dis destruction. Instead, the imagery that the psalmist evokes reminds us of the very next verse in in, in, in Psalm 1, verse 4, the wicked are not so, that is not like the blessed man, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. This is why the psalmist ends his prayer by saying, nor do those who pass by say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. And so as you were out reaping and gathering the harvest, if, if someone were walking by and they saw you reaping this magnificent harvest, they might say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. The, the, the harvest was evidence of the blessing of God. We're talking about blessing and curse here. And, and the psalmist is saying, Lord God, would you not repay our oppressors 
those who oppose you in your name, would you, would you not repay them with blessing, but with curse? He's saying, Lord, may, may those who hate Zion, who afflict your people, may they receive the very opposite of blessing. And, and I think what the psalmist is, is referring to here, I think what's rattling around in the mind of our author is a covenant promise that the Lord made to his people all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. You see, this is a, this is a promise, this promise that the Lord made to Abraham. We call it the Abrahamic covenant. This is a promise that God's people clung tightly to. The Lord told Abraham at the beginning of Genesis 12 that uh, he says, I, I will make you a great nation. This is significant because Abraham and his, his wife were unable to conceive children. And yet he, he promises that I'll, I'll make you a great nation. I will bless you. There's that, there's that word bless. And I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless, there it is, those who bless you. That's not the picture that we get in, in Psalm 129. It's we're not talking about those who bless God's people, but the opposite. And the Lord tells Abraham, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who dishonors you, the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So this is why it's, it's significant in Verse 4, that the Lord is righteous. This is why the, the character of our God matters. Is our God righteous and faithful to remember his promises to his people, or is he not? And so the, the psalmist here is confidently calling upon the Lord. Remember, this is a psalm of confidence. He confidently calls upon the Lord, remembering not only that he has delivered his people from, from their affliction time and time and time again as their deliverer, but also he cries out to the Lord, assured that he will execute justice as their righteous judge and that those who afflict them, who dishonor them, will reap curses and not blessings. Now look, I, I know and I, I want to acknowledge that there's, there's tension here. And maybe you, you feel some of this tension. It feels really uncomfortable to pray these kinds of prayers for and against other people, doesn't it? Even, even if they're our enemies, even if they're our oppressors. Tension firstly because aren't we called to pray for those who oppress us? Aren't we called to pray for those who persecute us? Eugene Peterson, again, he has this book. It's called uh, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. He, he takes on the Psalms of Ascent one by one. It, it's, it's a worthy read. He, he reminds us in this chapter on, on Psalm 129 that, that prayer for those who persecute us isn't necessarily opposed to a persevering prayer for justice. Listen to this. 
So we will not make excuses for the psalmist's vindictiveness. He chooses that word vindictiveness. I'm not so sure that the psalmist is being vindictive here. Uh, We can maybe agree to disagree on that point, but listen to how he continues. What we will do is admire its energy. For it is apathetic, sluggish neutrality that is death to perseverance, acts like a virus in the bloodstream, and enervates the muscles of discipleship. That is, weakens the muscles of discipleship. The person who makes excuses for hypocrites and rationalizes the excesses of the wicked, who loses a sense of opposition to sin, who obscures the difference between faith and denial, grace and selfishness, that is a person to be wary of. For if there is not all that much difference between the way of faith and the ways of the world, there is not much use in making any effort to stick to it. He continues, For perseverance is not resignation, putting up with things the way they are, staying in the same old rut year after year after year, or being a doormat for people to wipe their feet on. Endurance is not a desperate hanging on, but a traveling from strength to strength. Perseverance, he says, is triumphant and alive. Triumphant and alive. So then, shall we pray prayers for those who persecute us, that they would trust in Jesus as their substitute and their savior? Yes, absolutely we should. But two pillars. Let's be careful not to allow these prayers to become prayers of resignation. Because we also pray triumphant and alive prayers for justice. To Jesus, who is our righteous deliverer, who is our righteous and faithful, and just judge. And we know that. Should they trust in him? Then he pays the just punishment for their sin. And if not, then a perfectly just punishment will fall on their own heads. It's an unpopular message. We might feel some tension here. But the alternative is not good news. A God who is, ju- who is not just is not a God worthy of our worship. A God who is just is worthy of our worship. A God who is just, brothers and sisters, even in the midst of affliction, is worthy of your confidence. There's also tension because we know that we ourselves, if we're honest, we know that we ourselves fell into this category of those who hate Zion. Our sin, even our own false sense of self-righteousness in our, in our past, they, they testify against us. We too were once worthy, not of blessing in Christ, but of curse apart from him. So I want to end with with these words from the Apostle Paul. Remember, the Apostle Paul who dragged the Christians kicking and screaming out of their homes, who stood in approval of the stoning of Stephen. Apostle Paul writes this to the, the Christians in Galatia. 
He reminds them that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. As it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of who? The blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. If I were to summarize that short passage, I would summarize it in this way. Jesus became a curse so that you and I could be blessed. And so, we pray confident, alive, persevering, and hear this, humble, humble prayers to our God, prayers for deliverance, and yes, prayers for justice, knowing that we can be confident in our Lord Jesus because he is our righteous deliverer and our just judge. Let's pray. Father, we live in a world where injustice seems to run rampant. We've, we've, only, we've only talked about injustices at the expense of your people in the form of, of oppression and persecution of your people. We know it's not just Christians who suffer injustice in our world. But all kinds of people suffer all kinds of injustices. And so now, Lord, we call out to you, we cry out to you, Lord, hopefully in confidence, knowing that you are good and perfect and just and righteous. You've been faithful to rescue and deliver your people in the past. And so we know that if we experience oppression and affliction today, that you will one day rescue and deliver us. And Lord, we, we know that you are a just God. And that one day you won't just make the injustices stop, but that one day you're going to make it all right. Lord, this is a, a deep yearning. This is a deep longing in the hearts and souls of your people. And honestly, I think this is a deep longing, a deep yearning in the hearts and souls of people who are far from you, even those who oppose you. Lord, would we cling confidently to our hope, our hope that is found in you, our righteous deliverer, our just judge. And Lord, would this hope, would this hope help us, even in the midst of affliction, to persevere triumphantly? We ask all of these things in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Two Pillars Church. Feel free to share this audio with others, but please do not alter or edit the content in any way. For more information about Two Pillars Church, please visit www.twopillarschurch.com.